Why does verbal behavior get such a bad rap? Kate and Amy, the host of SLP Nerdcast, are on today to explain the principles of verbal behavior and how it can improve your therapy. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA-certified speech-language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Kate and Amy, host of SLP Nerdcast. These two speech-language pathologists met several years ago and became kindred spirits in nerdiness and sci-fi fantasy. They enjoy reading, thinking, and discussing speech-language pathology topics. They are lifelong learners and clinicians with over 30 years combined experience working with individuals who have complex communication needs across a range of settings, including outpatient, private practice, public schools, and private schools. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hi, ladies. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. Yes. I'm thrilled. Let's start by having you guys tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get into our topics and questions. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I'll, I'll lay myself on the, on Thanks, the sacrificial table. Um, my name is Kate Granbois. I am a duly certified speech and language pathologist and board certified behavior analyst. Um, I have worked in a variety of different settings, but my most recent work has focused on uh, working in private practice with a focus in consultation, um, working as an AAC specialist for individuals who are non-speaking and also have complex communication needs and significant behavioral issues. Um, I spend a lot of my time mentoring and I, as you already mentioned, (laughs) participate in another podcast, SLP Nerdcast with my co-host, Amy. Take it away. Oh, thanks so much. Um, my name is Amy, Amy Wonka. I have been a speech language pathologist for quite a while in both the Northeast and the Midwest of the United States. Uh, before becoming an SLP, I worked for many years as a one-to-one paraprofessional and home service provider for individuals with complex communication needs. And that is sort of what made me go back to school and study speech language pathology and has sort of been my most exciting area of interest ever since. I have worked in a lot of different environments, including home-based, public school, non-public school, and outpatient environments. And I'm excited to be here today on your podcast. Thanks so much for having us. It's honestly my pleasure. I can't wait to learn more about you. Did you guys see how you met? Uh, we, um, we worked together a, a million years ago. Amy was hired as my mentor 
And I quickly convinced her to be my friend against, <laughs> against her will. Um, we were working in an outpatient hospital setting, and um, they were opening a clinic specific to augmentative alternative communication. Um, I knew very little. Amy knew quite a lot. And so yeah. they hired her to come and make us all smarter. And I didn't realize that up to this day. <laughs> I, I was just working. I was just a night. It was a night job. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to meet so many wonderful people. And one of those people was Kate, who has been a wonderful friend ever since. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I don't know if you guys knew this, but my previous co-host was also my mentor. And that's how really? we know each other. Yeah. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. awesome. Isn't that funny? It's so yeah. awesome. It's so important for our jobs. And I don't think it gets the, the um, highlights that it should. I no, it doesn't including lifelong friendships afterwards, right? right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> so I'd like to, I'm so excited as well, because I don't even think we highlighted yet that you, one of you is a BCBA as well as a speech language pathologist. And uh, the other has done training in ABA as you guys can kind of explain it a little bit better. Yes. So about five years, five or six years ago, actually probably more like seven years ago now, um, I, uh, that Kate uh, decided to enroll in the um, postgraduate coursework to sit for the BCBA exam. I actually convinced Amy to do the whole thing with me. This was another okay. one of my hoodwinkery, yeah. <laughs> convincing her to do things. Um, she did, we both did the entire, at the time it was a six course sequence and 1500 fieldwork hours with supervision. And then at the end of all of that, I decided to sit for the exam and Amy did not. So she is sort of like, I don't know if you, we could say fake BCBA, but you could say, <laughs> no. you know, they say everything but dissertation. Maybe it's like an every EB BCBA. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think I'm just a gal who read a lot of things. <laughs> you still are a gal who just reads a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. So that, that's where this whole episode is kind of going to be centered on. So you're speech language pathologist, you have knowledge of ABA practices, one of you is a BCBA as well. And we're going to be talking a lot about verbal behavior, which I've had the pleasure of talking with other BCBAs on this podcast, but we haven't really dived into that topic. So I'm really thrilled about this. So let's start by talking about what it actually is and where did it come from? That is a great question. Um, Amy and I feel pretty strongly about this topic because we both had, you know, we've had very different um, experiences in our careers. Uh, but we think that verbal behavior in general gets a pretty bad rep and a lot of people are told the wrong thing. So for example, when I first started my career, I was told by a coworker who was much more seasoned than me. You know, I had all these, I had a really large caseload, a large percentage of my students or clients had autism. A lot of them were getting ABA services and a lot of them were getting this weird thing called verbal behavior. And I asked my coworker at the time who was much older than me and much more seasoned, you know, what is this? What is this weird verbal behavior thing? Shouldn't I know what it is? I'm a speech pathologist. And her answer to me was that verbal behavior was when a BCBA took a kid's device away and made him speak. And that is absolutely not true. But I spent 10 years, maybe more than that, having this really twisted, dark concept of what behavior analysis and consequently verbal behavior was because of this piece of misinformation. So in terms of answering your question, Verbal behavior is 
a, there is a, you know, there is a definition for it straight from Skinner's mouth. It was created by BF Skinner. Um, it's actual definition from Skinner's book, Verbal Behavior, is that it is behavior reinforced through the mediation of other persons. Um, but to go back a little bit and give a little bit of history, so the field of behavior analysis sort of started in uh, right after the turn of the 19, in like 1913, right, right around the turn of the century, um, with a guy named Watson. And he developed this theory about the relationships between stimuli and organisms. And he basically said that um, behavior should be observable and that the focus of behavior should be on the relationship between a stimulus and the environment uh, in the environment and the response of an organism. That was sort of the beginning of applied behavior analysis. This is a very, very short, fast forwarded version of a very complex topic, but Sort of jumping forward to the 1930s, there was this man. His name was B.F. Skinner. Um, lots of he's sort of the father of ABA or the grandfather of ABA. Um, he was also um, the nemesis to the counterparts at MIT that we all learn about in the area of linguistics, whose name is Noam Chomsky. Correct, Amy? Is that right? That's yeah. right. She's giving, she's giving me thumbs up here. Um, so lots of people have heard of B.F. Skinner, Skinner, but he basically took Watson's theory that a the relationship of behavior is not just a stimulus in the environment and an organism's response. It is also, its behavior is more shaped by the stimulus that happens after a response. So for the first time in history, we have this very novel idea. It sort of shook up the field that behavior is shaped by something that happens before it, then there's the behavior, and then there's the consequence, right? So we have stimulus, behavior, stimulus, the acronym for this is ABC. There's an antecedent, there's a behavior, and there's a consequence. And again, just because this is sort of dense, Skinner says, is the first person to come along and say that behavior is more shaped by the consequence that happens after the behavior. So he comes up with this fundamental theory, ABC. Three term, it's called the three-term contingency, antecedent behavior consequence. And then he applies it to language, right? And the whole universe explodes <laughs> because this is really the first time that this external observable three-term contingency of, of antecedent behavior consequence is applied to the idea of communication. And that field up until that time had really been dominated by what we know of as linguistics, right? This traditional field of um, you know, all of the famous names that we know of that time period, particularly Noam Chomsky. Um, so Skinner wrote a whole bunch about verbal behavior and he really felt that this book, Verbal Behavior, was his life's work. It was a massive undertaking. Um, he started working on it in 1931, but he actually didn't finish it until 1957. It is an incredibly dense book but at the root of it, at the root of verbal, of verbal oh. behavior is the idea, that's Amy's, Amy's talking. I'll mute my microphone. I know. <laughs> um, so verbal behavior is very, the book verbal behavior is very dense. At the root of verbal behavior was a significant difference from the traditional classifications of language. So up until that time, there was a lot of talk about the form of language, phonemes, morphemes, syntax, and it really deviated from the traditional views of function in that the function of language was not a person's genetics. It wasn't cognitive processes. It wasn't intention. It wasn't all of these things that we can't see. 
But instead, the function of language was specifically related to the immediate and historical environmental contingencies, which means your language and communication was shaped by your learning history based on consequences in your environment. So it's sort of a long answer to that question about where it came from, but, you know, verbal behavior has these really long roots in, um, in history related to being rooted in this, these fundamental tenets of interactions with the environment and consequences. And unfortunately, over the years, it's really been twisted into a lot of different um, confusing things, especially because there's all of these different vocabulary words related to it, manned, tact, intraverbal, you know, what are they? What do they mean? Who uses them? But at the root of it, in Skinner's actual view, or in Skinner's original view, it was, at the root of it, it was, it's the mediation of behavior through other persons. Um, a lot has been done on verbal behavior since Skinner first published all of these things. A lot of people are probably familiar with a man named Mark Sundberg, who is working still. I believe he's in Florida. Um, so Skinner went to, you know, he created this concept of verbal behavior. And then Mark Sundberg really took it and remapped this framework into what we would think of as a typical language development model. Um, he has done a million, he's written a million publications, but he's very well known for the VB map. So if people have heard his name, that's probably where they've heard it. I'm not sure. That was a really long, a really long explanation really long. for that question. Amy, do you have anything to add? Well, I appreciate the tour in the time machine. And I think it was helpful <laughs> to kind of set, you know, to set the structure for where this analysis of language came from. Um, I think practically having worked in, you know, some places that are, that are using an ABA based methodology, there's room for, you know, challenges, which we'll talk about later, you know, in the podcast, but where sometimes that, that perspective on language development is at odds with the lens that we bring a speech pathologist to an analysis of language development. Um, and I think that there, and I know we will, you know, talk about this at some point, but they're so complementary to one another. Um, and I think some, uh, no, I, I think a really specific misconception, another misconception about verbal behavior is that it is a, it's a, um, like a hierarchy or it's a protocol that people use. Verbal behavior is not any of those things. It is literally exactly as we just, as I described, it is a, it is the, the behavior that is mediated through the actions of others or through the behavior of others. And that includes sign. It includes writing. It includes speaker. It's any behavior that's re that's reinforced through the mediation of other people. So at the root of, you know, what is verbal behavior, speech pathologists just use the word communication. We have, you know, we have these two fields that use very different lingo that makes it very confusing. Um, I think a very simple answer to your question is that verbal behavior is communication, what a speech pathologist would call communication. Would you agree with that, Aim? I would. I guess I would, I would put the layer on top of it that it's looking through the lens of that three-term contingency, which is not how a lot of us are looking at it. So right. I think we're looking broadly at the same thing, but with very different glasses on. Yes. That's great. So the three-term contingency, I don't know if I missed that. Is that the antecedent behavior and consequence? Okay. Yes. These are the different terminology misunderstandings, right? Yes. Right. 
And yes. you know, the thing about the three-term contingency that is so important is that it's relevant in so many aspects of our lives that we don't, and again, this is sort of without looking through the behavioral lens, we sort of miss it. So for example, you know, I have a toddler, my toddler, um, well, I guess he's older now. He's no longer a toddler, even though he still acts like a toddler. <laughs> he's, he's a six-year-old, very healthy boy. But, uh, you know, when he was younger, I put him in the grocery store cart and he would scream if I gave him a lollipop. The likelihood of him continuing to scream every time he came to the grocery store and I put him in the cart is much higher, right? That's the three-term contingency. Getting in the grocery cart, screaming in the grocery cart, getting a lollipop after he gets screams in the grocery cart, the presence of that lollipop, giving him that lollipop is the stimulus that makes that behavior more likely. So the three-term contingency is everywhere in our everyday lives. Um, and it's much more complex than the way I'm explaining it, but it's, um, it's something that is, I don't know, prevalent everywhere. And when you look at communication through that lens, it can be really, really helpful. I love that perspective. And I can definitely see how this would be very complementary to our field. However, I do think that both fields look at communication a little bit differently, whereas mm -hmm. we know all of the modes that can be available and some not all, very few, I'm sure, of uh, ABA therapists are familiar with the traditional verbal gestures. But I think if we're collaborating, we can really do some amazing things using the verbal behavior approach and incorporating things like, let's say, AAC. I, when you were talking, I was thinking of aided language stimulation as a perfect example of this mediation by another person, right? Yeah. And actually we're working on an episode now that reframes aided language modeling into behavioral terms because there's a bunch of nonsense out there that aided language modeling is not evidence-based practice from a behavioral perspective. And that's absolutely not true. Um, but, you know, sort of hopping off that point, we have a lot to say about this. There are BCBAs don't necessarily come to the table with any knowledge of developmental norms. Um, that's not always true. The BCBA degree can get tacked onto pretty much anything. You can have special educators who are BCBAs, speech pathologists who are BCBAs, psychologists who are BCBAs, zoology majors who are BCBAs. BCBAs are, they get an education in how to teach, but what to teach is not is always different um, based on the education that they receive. So that collaboration that you just touched on is unbelievably important. Um, the two fields definitely look at communication through two different lenses. And as I'm sure a lot of your listeners, you know, are aware, sometimes that collaboration is prickly and the, you know, the two fields don't necessarily play together well in the sandbox, which is really unfortunate because the science of ABA is an incredible complement to the field of speech and language pathology. But yeah. similarly, the field of speech language pathology is a complement yes. to the science of ABA. Yes. And I think that they the, should be best friends. Yeah. Yeah. They should hold hands and do all the hugging. Yes. <laughs> well, the more information like this we put out there, the better I think it'll be for both fields. So I appreciate you kind of giving us that background information. Let's talk about verbal operands. What are they and how are they important? 
Um, Amy is going to be a great person to go through some of these. Um, I think I'll just start by talking about the word operant. So the three-term contingency, that stimulus response stimulus or um, antecedent behavior consequence is also called operant learning or the operant model. So when you talk about verbal operants, it's really this, to say it casually, the units within the different components of the three-term contingency within verbal behavior. Take okay. Yeah. So the operants, I think back to that ongoing dialogue with collaborators who are, you know, coming from the field of ABA, I think part of what's a challenge is that we use different words to describe slightly different things and sometimes basically the same thing. Um, so the verbal operants are those very specific terms and definitions that Skinner developed when he took all of that time to write his massive book about verbal behavior. Um, so we're thinking about that three-term contingency. And like Kate said, that antecedent, whatever comes first, the behavior, and then the consequence. In thinking about that relationship, when Skinner broke down the different components of verbal behavior, he said, you know, all of these different components sort of have a different overall broad effect on the consequences. And that is how we're going to, with this behavioral lens, you know, dissect these different components of communication. Um, so one thing that you may have heard a lot about. So when, when we were thinking about Sunberg, who Kate was talking about, he came up with this program called the VB Map. He also was a co-developer of something called the ABLE. So if you've ever use one of those tools or gotten a report where somebody else used one of those tools, you'll see that there's sort of criterion um, reference tools and skills inventories where they talk about all these different skills with these different levels of complexity. And one of the terms that you'll see in both of those tools is the word manned uh, for a speech language pathologist and somebody who, you know, has worked in behavior analytic settings, you know, your first thought is like, okay, so a man means the same thing as a request, but like not quite. It's, it's just different enough to make it confusing. Um, when we think about a man and we think about the actual verbal behavior definition, uh, it's really about regulatory communication, right? So man's are verbal behavior in which the form of the response, so again, that could be oral speech, that could be signs, is under the control of a specific motivation, so that's kind of getting at that antecedent piece, and has a history of specific reinforcement. So that's a lot of technical jargon. So if we kind of step back and break it down, yes, that could apply to a request, right, which is what we think about in our heads. So maybe, you know, a boy is thirsty, he says water, and he gets water. Right, so the form of communication that he used in that case was oral speech. The motivation or sort of that antecedent, what came first was being thirsty. And then the consequence was this reinforcement. He got access to something, water, which was connected with what he asked for. Okay, so that's a good example of a request. Um, but yes. Another example would be, and this is I think where the two terms are request and manned we think of them as the same, but actually they're different. If, you know, a little boy was, or any of our clients, we probably see this all the time in our clinical work, showing some signs of frustration during the work session at the desk. And they said, stop. And they screamed, stop. 
and the person stopped or got up and walked away or they say, all done, and the person removes the materials, the speech pathologist might call that a refusal, uh, protest. a protest, a behavior analyst is going to call that a mand because the motivation, the antecedent is escape. The, there's the specific form that could be touching all done on your device, screaming stop, saying all done. And the reinforcement is specific to the motivation of that man. So again, the, this, is a, this is, and I think that this is a fine point to pick at, but I've seen a lot of arguments or disagreements over like, well, I want to teach man's, but that doesn't, but, and then the speech pathologist says, but we need to give him more than just food items because they think that manding is just asking for things. And there's this, you know, confusion over the difference between those terms. Well, and I think you make a really good point there too, Kate, which is another thing you sort of have to understand to really understand mans and what a mand is, is you have to understand different types of reinforcement. So a lot of people myself included, know that the kind of colloquial use of the term reinforcement means getting stuff, right? I got good stuff. So if I think about reinforcement only in terms of kind of the plus, the addition of something good, in the case of, you know, our boy, he asked for water, so he got water and that was something good. It can also mean things that are aversive going away. That's also reinforcement. It's just called negative reinforcement. So you can also be reinforced by information. Reinforcement doesn't have to be something that's tangible. Um, I might ask Kate, you know, Kate, what are your plans for this weekend? And technically, that's, a, that's actually a man for information. What do I want to get? What is the thing I want to get? I want to know what Kate's going to do this weekend. I want that information. So I think that that's a really good point that you brought up, Kate, that that can be a, a source of um, confusion and maybe disagreement. And some of that goes back to the terminology of what exactly is a manned. But I think even more than that, it's having a broader understanding of all these different things that might serve as reinforcers. And when what that means for you as a speech pathologist is when you're thinking about your programming, just being very mindful about like, what is the power that you're giving your client in teaching them this specific skill? I think that that's sort of the spin that I have on it as somebody who's not a BCBA, but, you know, thinking about, okay, I want to teach them to ask a question, but why do I want to teach them to ask a question? What is it like, what's the power behind that? What is the reinforcement? What's the reinforcement, right? And just sort of piggybacking onto that a little more to transition into talking about tact. There, just like Amy said, there are different kinds of reinforcers. Um, you know, there's the classic, you know, I guess, reinforcement model that we think of like star charts or edibles or access to games or a prize box or a treasure box or whatever you're using in your um in your clinic or practice, but there are also generalized, there's things called generalized conditioned reinforcers. So generalized conditions reinforcers are things that have been paired with a lot of other kinds, with a lot of other different kinds of conditions and unconditioned reinforcers. So a great example of a generalized conditioned reinforcer is money. Money can be exchanged for everything, right? Which is why it's so potent. So generalized conditioned reinforcers are a really important kind of reinforcer to understand because, because they, are so potent, they are so potent. It's really hard to satiate on them. Um, I always say you could only pay me in chocolate cake for a day. 
but you could pay me in money until the day I die, right? So, um, but that, that might be a good transition into the different kinds of verbal operants because each verbal operant has a different kind of reinforcement that is associated with it. Yes, that's a very good point. But when we think about man's, the reinforcement really is specific to the motivation and the, and the form of the response, right? When we think about tact, you said tact. Um, tact is not telling somebody you don't really like their haircut, but in a thoughtful and kind way, right? Are you That's trying to tell tact. me something? No, <laughs> no. I haven't cut <laughs> my hair in months. <laughs> um, but when we think about tacting, we're really thinking about a form, the form of the response is under the control of a nonverbal stimulus and the history of that conditioned reinforcement. So unlike a man where what you that what the what the communicator is saying is really tied to some underlying motivation attacked is really tied would it be fair kate to say that it's tied to some underlying observation you can maybe i'm not sure that like literature would say that but we hell well we it's can, a non-bcba i'm gonna say it <laughs> we can, right we you you could totally say that yes i think the the crucial difference the differentiating factor is that it's under the control of a non-verbal stimulus and so that would be something that you can see. That would be something that you can hear, something you can smell, taste, perhaps. Um, and when we think about speech language pathologists, often we sort of draw this parallel between a tact and a comment or a label. But again, those aren't, a, it's not a perfect analog. Those terms aren't perfect analogs for one another. Um, and I think so, this is another one that gets pretty, you know, skewed in the ABA world because we've seen so many programs of just the quote tacting program where the kid is just sitting there like labeling items. Mm -hmm. um, but the true, I interrupted you. The, tell us about, tell us more about tact. Well, I, I true, go though. Wait, I want to pause yes. for a second. I don't mean to interrupt you either, but no. I think you guys covered so much. I don't want to skip over the mand because I think that that from the other side, from an SLP's perspective, who doesn't know a lot about BCBA, that's really, really important to kind of break down. You guys did a fantastic job of doing that. I want to make sure that I understood it correctly. So for me, it seems like the mand is that relationship between that three contingency model. And it's like, um, so it's probably like that behavior piece. So there's the antecedent, then there's the mand, and then there's the different reinforcement types or the consequence at the end. And whatever, I guess, the reinforcement was that they were like looking for, that motivation, um, that's going to vary the mand. Was that correct? The, man, the mand is when the reinforcement matches the, the motivation. So if I want water and someone gives me water, that's the man, that's manned. But to contrast it with a tact, if I see water and say water just because I observe it, that's a tact. Whereas the manned means I get the water. Got it. Um, one, uh, we can, the one, something that's in our notes that we just haven't gotten to is that exact parallel example of saying, wanting water, see, wanting water, saying water, getting water versus like driving on the seaside coast seeing the water, saying water, and then the reinforcement isn't getting in the water. It's the mom or somebody saying, oh yeah, that's water. Isn't it beautiful? It's blue and sunny and all that.
guess what? Now you can get full episode transcriptions and handouts for select podcast episodes. Podcasts are convenient to listen to, but note-taking is hard when you're on the move. You might try pausing episodes to jot down a quick note or use speech-to-text to mark your favorite tips, but these methods interrupt your listening experience and can be pretty dangerous if you're listening in the car. I know this because that's what I usually do when I listen to podcast episodes. Show notes are great, but they're not meant to be comprehensive. Now, starting with our most recent pod course, Bring on the Challenge, AAC Meets Challenging Behaviors, you can get access to the full pod course transcription and a handout. Here's all you have to do. Register for the pod course at tasseltogether.com. Then choose how you want to earn ASHA CEUs, one time or all year long. Once you're registered, you'll have access to all the course materials, including the transcription and handout. The handout includes a list of strategies discussed in the episode that you can refer back on, as well as a list of references in case you ever need to show evidence behind your practice. The transcription has highlighted sections that align with the course agenda so you can easily refer back to specific topics. And once all your course requirements are met, TASSEL will automatically report your course participation to ASHA for you. And just for listening to this podcast, don't forget to use the code SSU podcast to receive up to 25% off any plan. So let's just take some of our like SLP, common SLP terms. You guys did some of them. You did like protesting, requesting, directing would be amend, right? Commenting would be attacked. It really, it really depends. That's the tricky thing. And that's where sometimes, and you're bringing up such good questions because I think that this is part of where it can be challenging for people because we want to be able to say like this term equals this, but it's, it's really driven by the individual situation. So sometimes I may make a comment, but if I'm a kid who's making comments in Kate's commenting program in, you know, in the classroom, and I'm really making the comments so that I can earn all those tokens. It's, it's not actually a true tact. A true tact would be because I saw this one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could also get very tricky because you could have what are called oh. multiply controlled elements where like, we're not going to talk oh. about that in depth right now. I'm going to let Kate talk a little bit because my dog is barking a lot. So sorry <laughs> about that. But does that answer your question? It does. It does. And I think that this doesn't necessarily like there are two different degrees for a reason. And I think from an SLP's point of view that they don't need to know the nitty gritty so much of either one. But I think you blew a lot of minds in this episode with the fact that man doesn't just mean request. And it actually gives us some good like talking points when a BCBA does bring up that they want the child, let's say, to work on manding. And instead of the SLP immediately saying, oh no, like we're not going to just work on requesting. We need to work on all, you know, elements of language or all functions of communication. They can actually say, okay, yeah, actually let's work on manding, which includes this, this, and this. Right. Right. Yes. Cool. And I think knowing that we are on the same page often in both disciplines because especially with early communicators, like your example that you just gave, I think we, part of why a lot of people want to start with man's, whether speech pathologists realize a lot of what we're doing initially is, is addressing man's or not, is because it is the most powerful for the communicator. So when we think about tax, like the example of saying water, because I see the sea, 
that doesn't really get me anything. It doesn't make anything I don't like go away. It's just giving me sort of a social exchange with somebody. Whereas the man's like water or no water or all done, those are getting my immediate needs met. So when we think about early community, Oh, Amy, you froze. My back. You're back. We really are. When we think about early communication, we really are working on that regulatory communication, right? So as a speech pathologist, I would say, I'm working on regulatory communication. But a BCBA might say, I'm working on man's. And what we don't realize is that we're both working on the same thing and just calling it. That's a great um, way to kind of summarize that. I appreciate that. Thank you. So to sort of um, go back to the verbal operants and the difference, just to make it, you know, very like unequivocally clear in a mand where you have the antecedent and, and the, the antecedent as the motivation matching the very specific reinforcement intact, what happens before the behavior that we're talking about is the communication, the language. And the antecedent is a non, something that's nonverbal, something that you see, hear, smell, come in contact with. And the reinforcement is generalized, conditioned reinforcement, meaning it is not a specific item. It's praise or it's another additional conversation or it's another person commenting. So to use an analogy that is similar to the one we used before in MAND, um, a MAND example is... Um, a boy wants water, he gets water, he says water, he's given the water versus driving on the seaside, looking out the window, seeing the water, saying water, and then a parent or someone saying, yes, that's the water, it's blue and it's gorgeous. So in comparing manned and tact against each other, you know, we often think of tact as commenting or labeling things. And as Amy said, we always want those two things to be, we want, it's so easy to be like labeling is the same thing as tacting, but it's not actually what it is. The verbal behavior requires this analysis of each individual communication act to determine what happened right before it and what is reinforcing it. And that's how we define and separate all these verbal operands. So if you were, if you had a language sample, if you were working with somebody and you took down your language sample and you go back through afterwards, I think a key difference is that as a speech language pathologist, I can conduct my language sample analysis. I can look at the MLU. I can figure out all of these different things from reading the language sample. But if I'm trying to determine the function of communication using an ABA approach or using that three-term contingency, I kind of need a lot more background information notes than I would from my actual language sample. So I may be able to tell from my language sample what came first and whether that was attacked or a manned, but I also might need additional information to figure out, or I need to be conducting you know, a language sample of whoever is responding to the person whose language sample I'm collecting in order to make, in order to make determinations about whether it was a man or attacked. That makes sense. So did we want to talk about tact anymore? Are you guys um, ready to talk about how these principles can improve the practice of SLPs? Um, I think we can definitely move on. Um, there, I did want to mention two other verbal operants that come up quite a bit in interactions with ABA um, 
providers. And I think it might, they're, they're very quick. They're a lot less confusing than the di- than differentiating between manding and tacting. Um, the first is an echoic. Um, we hear this a lot from ABA providers who are working on articulation. The casual speech term, what we would call echoics, are speech imitation. Which so I think that's a pretty solid translation. It's a, that's it's like, like the only one, the only verbal operant <laughs> that has a very clear this equals this. So when you work on when you have an ABA therapist or a BCBA saying they're working on echoics, it's basically where the the definition, in case anybody feels like nerding out on this, is where the the behavior, the antecedent is an auditory stimulus. The behavior matches the the auditory stimulus with what they call formal similarity. So it sounds, looks exactly like the uh, the, the antecedent component. Um, and again, the, the reinforcement for an echoic is generalized condition reinforcement. So I think from a speech pathology perspective, an echoic is speech imitation. And when they work on echoics, a lot of times it's what we call intelligibil- uh, stimulability. Um, and the last one is intraverbals. Interverbals are things that you would hear a lot about. They can get very, very complex. So I don't necessarily, I don't know that we need to like get into interverbals all that much. Um, But it's basically a communication act that's under the control of another verbal stimulus, um, which is basically the antecedent of the communication is someone talking. And then there's the communication act um, and the history of reinforcement and generalized condition reinforcement. So when you hear a BCBA using the term intraverbal, it, it, it can be a lot of different things. It's basically any communication act that is happening in response to someone else's verbal communication. Not necessarily speech, but someone else's communication. And I think, I think a big distinction between that and echoics. Echoics and intraverbals are both something that happens after your communication partner says something to you. Um, whereas an echoic is going to match what you match what the person said, and an introverbal, you're saying something different from what you want to try one. Yeah, let's try. Ready? One. You be the teacher. I'll be the student. Okay. First um, one is a co- here's an example of an echoic. Oh. I can't bark like a dog. <laughs> Woof. <laughs> try again. Woof. <laughs> no, say a word. Woof. No. <laughs> okay. Woof. Well done. Um, that was an echoic. I said woof. Kate said woof. It matched my woof. Introverbal. What sound do you keep hearing from my end of the the Zoom call? Woof. Mm, Yeah. So you can see there, Kate's answer was the same both times, but it was two different verbal behaviors, two different types of verbal behavior. Got it. I appreciate the example. I love examples. <laughs> and I definitely like want to ask so many questions. Like the one you guys just did, could that be a man too? But I feel like we can definitely go down a rabbit hole. With this. I mean, if what I wanted was the dog and I was a toddler and I saw, you know, a little dog running in the park and I saw the dog and I wanted the dog, I could say woof so that someone would bring the dog to me. But in that example, this is where you get into the tricky multiply controlled because I saw the dog. Was I showing someone the dog as a joint attention act? And what I wanted was to share about the dog and the reinforcement is someone talking to me about the dog or is it that I wanted the dog? It gets crazy. This is real rabbit hole territory. <laughs> this is. <laughs> it, it really is. And people spend, I, you know, we, ha- we have an episode about verbal behavior at, in our podcast and 
you know, we should have said at the beginning, we are not verbal behavior experts. People, people devote their entire careers to studying verbal behavior. This is really, really complex stuff. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a, as like a disclaimer, um, there's a lot of literature out there. I think if somebody is really interested in learning more about verbal behavior, consider, you know, going to take a class in it. Um, cause it is very, very complex and can be, sometimes it feels like it's way, way above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you guys did a fantastic job, I think, breaking each of those down, but you're right. If someone's looking to learn more, they can absolutely go and seek that information. So this is such valuable information. How can it improve the practice of an SLP? Um, that's a really, really good question. And I think Amy and I both feel pretty strongly about this. First and foremost, I think you know, like we had already mentioned, collaboration between, well, we know collaboration between any professionals, any set of professionals is better for our students and clients. Um, and it's really hard to collaborate with another set of professionals who use a totally different set of jargon, but are also responsible for the same, sometimes the same, you know, skills on an IEP or, or even if we don't like it, you know, we love to say this is our territory where communication specialists, um, ABA people shouldn't be working on this. And that's a totally valid opinion, but that's not the way it works, unfortunately, right? So we have a lot of clients and families who have great relationships with their BCBAs, and we can't collaborate effectively with them if we don't know what they're talking about. So having a fundamental understanding of verbal behavior can be a really great way to improve collaboration with behaviorally oriented professionals, particularly behaviorally oriented professionals who are using jargon, which is as a side note, it's annoying and it's there, it's in their code of ethics, our slash our code of ethics as BCBAs to not use jargon, um, but it happens anyway. So, you know, first and, for, first and foremost, understanding verbal behavior can really help with collaboration. I think the second piece that me personally it has helped my um, work as a speech and language pathologist is that it's helped me look at the function of language through a really different lens. So not necessarily what my students and clients are communicating, but why are they communicating? Why are they, why are they communicating for in a particular way? So what are the reinforcers at play that are making a manned or attacked or, you know, and I, P.S., I don't use those words. Every time I use the word manned in my clinical work, I feel like I'm cheating on someone. I, I, I prefer to use my speech and language pathology hat first. Um, but it's, it's, it, the lens of verbal behavior will really help a speech pathologist look at the impact on the environment and what is motivating or what is reinforcing um, a communication act. Um, I, just for the sake of using examples, I think a good example would be maybe you've taught a student to um, say they want a break from their work at the desk. And you learn over time, you know, because they're crawling under the table or, you know, they're engaging in some sort of unwanted behavior. So you think, okay, well, I'm going to give them a functional way to ask for it to be all done. And so you put the icon on their desk or you teach them the sign or you show it to them on the device or you teach them to say all done and you practice it and you model it and you're using prompting and it's like not working, right? The, the student is acting out still. They're not touching the icon. And I think from a behavior analytic lens, maybe it's because 
taking a break is not what they want. Maybe when they crawl onto that desk, you end up getting under there with them or it makes this big, what they want is attention. What they want is play. So in that situation, looking at it from a behavioral lens and looking at it through what reinforces our play might help you choose your vocabulary, might make you look at the, your teaching procedure from a diff, in a different light. And I think all of that perspective comes from the three-term contingency and, and the verbal behavior perspective. I think another piece that I would add to that is when we think about that three-term contingency and we think about the antecedent, we think about what's driving the communication and sort of under what conditions. I think that that's another piece that I have taken away through working um, with the behavioral interpretation of lang language as part of my assessment. Um, it becomes supplementary information that I can use when I'm taking inventory of what a client currently can do, what might be good next step skills to teach them. It complements all of the information that you're getting from a more standard language battery. Um, and it helps think about particularly if people have trouble generalizing into different environments and different situations, kind of dissecting that first step a little bit. Like, okay, so maybe it's not just that being thirsty is the thing that is part of the antecedent condition that results in the client saying water and then getting water. It's also like being in this room with your cup on the table. And that maybe is also part of the antecedent piece that helps remind the person that, okay, when the cup is present and I'm thirsty, then I ask for water. So as a clinician, kind of applying that framework and thinking about the end result of the type of communication that my client is using can help me identify better ways to teach if I'm seeing that my client is having challenges acquiring a skill or using that skill in new places and with new people. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I think that that was a great point in showing like the value of verbal behavior for SLPs. Uh, just to summarize, collaboration, to know why someone is communi communicating, and then to also like help with generalization. Was there another one? I don't think, I think so. That those are the big, I mean, I think overall collaboration is important. So being able to work as part of a interdisciplinary team, but um, yeah. Okay, perfect. So speaking of collaboration, what are your tips for effective collaboration with behaviorally oriented professionals? So when we were preparing um, to come on to your podcast, um, we were sort of looking through a lot of the the materials that we have because collaboration is something that we've, you know, talked a lot about in conferences and we have an episode on it. Um, so full disclosure, the information is all from an infographic that we have in case anyone's listening to this and they're like, this is not at all original. I've seen this. I've seen this already. <laughs> um, so we base, we, in our experience in talking about this have divided good collaboration strategies into four major buckets. The first of these buckets is understanding that it is okay to disagree. You do not have to agree with everyone on your team. It's totally okay to agree to disagree. And it doesn't have to be a personal attack. As a matter of fact, it shouldn't be one. And if you're going to disagree, you need to do it respectfully. Dis professional disagreements happen and it shouldn't have any bearing on you feeling like you haven't done a good job or they're doing a bad job. Um, you know, making sure that you're going into a disagreement with mutual respect is really, really important. We also think that 
there are great ways. So maybe you can't agree on an issue, but maybe you can agree on how to solve the issue. So um, we're both AAC people. We see this a lot in the AAC world. I'll recommend a specific tool. Lo and behold, there's a BCBA who thinks that there is a different tool that's better. We totally don't agree about it. Okay, how are we going to solve this problem? Because whether I I like it or not, the BCBA is a stakeholder for my student or client. They have a relationship with the family. So it is really my ethical obligation and responsibility to make sure that I am collaborating with that individual. A great way to figure out how to solve that problem is using data. So if you can't come to an agreement, maybe you can decide on a data collection system to measure the success of the two different treatments that you're recommending or the two different tools that you're recommending. Agree on how to figure it out. Agree on how to flush it out. Agree on how to decide instead of turning it into, you know, a contest over who's right and who's wrong. I think if you go into those issues knowing that it's okay to disagree and figuring out how to get out of that disagreement um, is a really great and uh, it's a really good place to start. The second bucket uh, or the second um, suggestion or strategy for collaboration is is sort of a personal one. Um, we both, Amy and I both agree that effective collaboration cannot happen with an ego. You have to leave your ego at the door. You have to remember that it's not a competition, that it's not about you, that it's student-centered or client-centered, and that you're there representing, bringing your knowledge to the table to mutually make good decisions about your student or client. It's also really great to remember that your counterpart, the BCBA, should also be leaving their ego at the door and is also there, should be there representing your student or client. There is no territory in collaborative work. I know, I, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, in thinking about how you know we love to think that we're the owners of Communication Island, but we're not. We own most of the territory, but there's other people who visit. There's speech, but there's teachers who visit Communication Island. There's, you're laughing at me. There's, there's BCBAs who visit Communication Island. There's psychologists who visit Communication Island. There are so many people who visit and, and own stakes in Communication Island. We're not the only ones. And for some reason, this discipline really just gets in there and makes us feel like we don't want to we don't want to give them any of our island, but it's absolutely not the case. Um, and the second you have that competitive or ego-driven desire to be right, your your all bets for effective collaboration are off. The third strategy is um, really knowing what you don't know. So this is tied to ego, but I, I think you know for me a cornerstone of professional maturity is accepting that you don't know everything. No one is ever going to know everything. And using collaboration as an effective opportunity to learn is a really wonderful way to grow your skills and grow your, you know, grow your skill set, grow your knowledge base. It is so, so important to be humble in these, in these collaborative moments. Um, and by being humble and asking questions and taking it as an opportunity to learn is one of the best ways to diffuse what I call the competition bomb. So you're both in there. I know this, you know that I'm right. You're wrong. You've got that ego. Everybody's got their egos at the door. If you can remember that you don't know everything and that you have an opportunity to learn and you can humbly ask questions, it can really be effective at disarming, quote, disarming your opponent and giving them an opportunity to feel like they have something to contribute and they have something to teach you. Once you get that door open, 
a really great effective collaboration might be more likely because you've sort of diffused that, again, quote, competition bomb. Um, And the final one, this is my favorite one, be a person, not a jerk. (laughs) It's so simple, but it's so true. If you find yourself in a situation with a prickly pear, and collaboration is not going well because you did, you know, you did all the right things. You left your ego at the door. You know what you don't know. You brought, you came prepared to learn. And the person in the room is there and ready to fight. They are, they're, they're going to be right. They want, you know, to own oh, the part of Communication Island. If you can be a person and not be a jerk and be kind and take time to make a human connection with them, it can create it can really pave the way for a great working relationship that diffuses so many of those other components and roadblocks that get in the way of effective collaboration. Um, being kind and having a human moment and saying, I, I really I love your pants or how was your weekend? I feel like asking about the weather is super cliche and somebody might see, somebody might see right through that. Um, but, you know, being kind and, and having those moments can be, really just one of the best ways to create good collaborative working relationships. I think one other piece that goes along with that though, is that by being kind and collaborative, it doesn't mean that you always defer to the other providers either. So I think it's striking that balance, Um, you know, knowing that there's a lot for you to know, but likewise, you have a lot of information that the other providers should be knowing. So you're trying to strike a balance between certainly being aware and cognizant of entering into your interactions in a collaborative way, but also collaboration doesn't mean giving up, you know, all of your, like what you know and your information. So it's striking a balance and helping other people to understand what specific skills you bring to the table. Okay. So I've learned about this three-term contingency. I see how that could be helpful. Let me teach you a bit about um, form content and use. Let me teach you a bit about brown stages. Let me teach you a bit about why specifically. I'm not just saying no to a five-word target phrase. I'm saying no because all of these things come first and we want to work on those. So when you're having those interactions that could be charged and could be challenging, definitely keeping calm, definitely staying a person, definitely being nice, you know, but but also being assertive where you need to be assertive and seeing yourself as a, as a conduit to resources for this person, you know, who, who you hopefully will educate a bit more. And, you know, perhaps they won't have that challenging interaction with somebody else in the future because they'll say, oh, no, I understand there's, this is motor planning. And, and that's, that's the impact that motor planning could have on XYZ. Such great points. Thank you both so much. I can't believe this is over. And it's so funny because when we were talking about the topics we were going to do for this episode, you guys gave me like four totally different ones. And you're like, we should probably narrow down. And I was like, why? We could talk about all of those. And now I totally get why, because we just touched on verbal behavior here, but it was so incredibly helpful. I can't thank you guys enough. Um, I do have to say though, when I get your headshots, you're gonna have to include your dog's picture because he was part I'm of this episode. So, I'm so sorry. What's this his is name? awesome. She's a, she's an old she? she's an old girl. It's a she. Her name is Mabel, and and this is a Gabasius that she's been in such a long time. <laughs> I was gonna say we've recorded so many times, and I, she never makes a peep. So 
Mabel, you made your debut. She wants to talk. She wants to be on the podcast. (laughs) She really does. (laughs) Well, thank you, Mabel, for your input as well. Where can everybody find and connect with you guys? Um, we are, we've, we've learned how to use Instagram, which has been a journey. Um, so we're on there. It's at SLP Nerdcast. Um, our website is www.slpnerdcast.com. Um, we're on Facebook as well. And we love hearing from our listeners. People send in the best suggestions. Um, our email is info at slpnerdcast.com. Awesome. Thank you both so much for your time and sharing your knowledge and kind of playing devil's advocate, but giving both perspectives. I think it was really valuable for the listeners. Thank you so much for having yes. us. Thank you so much. Mabel. Bye, Mabel. Yes, thank you. Oh. <laughs> oh Before we go, please pause this episode and leave a five-star review or take a screenshot to post on social media if you're enjoying it. We're celebrating our two-year anniversary and we're so close to 100 reviews. Your reviews help this podcast keep going and growing because it lets other SLPs know it's worth the listen and it lets us know what topics you like. My team and I spend a lot of time every week putting these episodes together so they can be ready for you every Wednesday morning. Imagine we're giving you a virtual hug because your support seriously means the world.